Hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast powered by Alex on Autos. He's Alex. I'm Tim. Today, among other things, we discuss the Genesis G90 and where it stands against its rivals. We talk about under $30,000 cars, trucks, and crossovers. If we've got time, we're also going to talk about retractable hardtops and their relevance today, plus the controversial Acura TLX Type S PMC. Such it, a long name. Wow. It, it really <laughs> is for a car with less than 400 horsepower, Acura. But let's start with the Genesis G90 because this is fascinating. It's sort of a twilight mm -hmm. struggle in the premium full-size sedan category, but it's worth our attention. Yeah, I am intrigued that Genesis is putting so much money and effort into the G90. I think this is really just the 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 statement car for them. The the statement that they can build something like this, they can truly compete in what has classically been the most important segment in luxury, but honestly isn't necessarily anymore, but is still considered the flagship. So we have a 7 series, the flagship of the BMW brand, we have the S class as the flagship of Mercedes. So of course they needed a full-size sedan. Uh, and it is interesting how much money they are throwing at this because since 2015, they have had a significant refresh of a complete platform change and now an all-new G90. And in that same time frame with the Lexus LS, all they did was make a screen bigger and replace the awful little touchpad or track thingy uh, with a touchscreen. So the competition really doesn't spend this much money and this much time reinventing the product time and time again. And Genesis has spent a lot. Interesting twist, um, the G90 is really big at over 207 inches long yes. in the U.S., but there's one that's seven and a half inches longer, and uh, we don't know whether it's going to come here. Currently, it's only going to be sold in South Korea, but I really hope it shows up because that really would be intriguing. Um, the G90 is the most expensive Genesis ever conceived. The one that we're driving this week has a sticker price just over $100,000. Now, it's worth mentioning that that price includes almost everything. It's a very mm -hmm. well-equipped car. It has a substantially higher starting price at about 89000 compared to roughly seventy-seven for your basic LS, but you do get a lot of features for the money. There's not a Porsche-like options sheet after you pay hundred grand. Indeed. And what's always intrigued me about Genesis is their very pragmatic mission to designing a car and trying to keep costs under control. So Genesis does not, in fact, give you all of the equipment that you'll find in the competition. I think that they're just really excellent at deciding which options to give you and which to take away. So they're really, really good at this value proposition uh, calculation. Some might call it corner cutting. I think that's not quite true. Um, and if you want to think of it that way, then every manufacturer cuts corners. It's just a matter of which corner to cut and which one not to. So, for instance, in the G90, we have full LED headlights that are absolutely fantastic at night, but they don't fade on and off like we find in Mercedes models or BMWs. They don't have a digital dance with little designs on the, the LED display projecting on the road, etc. They just turn on and then they turn off automatically. We have power closing doors on all four doors. We have ambient lighting inside, but the ambient lighting doesn't have the Christmas tree color wheel thing going on like we find in modern Mercedes models.
Now, the other thing, too, is that they kept the powertrain selections very limited. There's a big engine, there's a small mm -hmm. engine, so to speak. Uh, it's not really a car that's about power because it's competitive with the Lexus, but neither one of them is designed to be a performance model. They're both fairly soft. The Genesis mm -hmm. maybe has a slightly better ride. The Lexus maybe a little bit quieter. It's hard to choose between the two. Neither one is trying to be... Um, you know, an AMG or BMW M car. I would mm -hmm. say this though, there is a little bit more refinement in the ride of the Genesis. It's not a huge deal, but what does strike me as a huge deal is the way it looks because the original Genesis G90 was humdrum. It was very conservative. <laughs> yeah. But the idea was that with this model, even though it drives similar to a Lexus, it's powered similar to a Lexus, and it's similarly sized to a Lexus. It's designed to look like pure sex on the outside. Like this mm -hmm. is G80 all grown up. It looks fantastic. And I would say the driving nature of it is much more BMW-like, I would say, than Lexus-like. Uh, the yeah. suspension refinement is particularly impressive, which I didn't expect. And that's something that Genesis has always struggled with a little bit. Uh, in the past, current generation G80 and G90 excluded, interestingly enough, though, they've really dialed in the rear suspension tuning, especially. So previously with models uh, like the first generation G90 or the original Genesis or Hyundai Equus, rather, I should say, um, when you were going over a, a in a corner and you hit a pothole and you're kind of banked already because you're driving a little harder, the rear suspension would do kind of a little shimmy. And we don't find that at all in the current G90. Instead, we find strangely quick steering, which had surprised me a little bit. Um, and that could just be their their new uh, focus on a little bit more performance in some of their models and that, that strong rear-wheel drive dynamic that they like. But the suspension is really, really cushy and really comfortable. Um, I'm, I'm really intrigued to see how the G90 goes because it has sold extremely well in its domestic market of South Korea. Uh, in the previous generation of the G90, they sold over 20,000 units in one year, which is an astronomical number if you aren't familiar with the, the Korean market for, for a luxury sedan there. And in the U.S., the sales were fairly respectable. I mean, they were selling better than the Audi and they were selling better than obviously the Jaguar back when it was still around. So the sales numbers are reasonable, but they're never going to quite be where we see uh, the Mercedes in volume. They do really appear to be taking a big chunk out of Lexus, though. And it's fascinating to me because this is kind of a declining segment when we talk about the so-called D-class D car, the 7 Series, the mm -hmm. S-class, the G90, the Lexus LS. I, I feel like we're getting to the point now where we've got maybe one or two generations of these left. The LS is now in its fifth generation. The world is all about crossovers and luxury SUVs, and it doesn't seem mm -hmm. like this vehicle has enough of a market to justify much more development. Uh, is is this like mm -hmm. the great ocean liners or the big bands of the 1930s, like the peak before the fall? Or this could just turn into the halo car, really, for yeah. luxury brands. I mean, that's truly what it has been for several generations. I have troubles imagining that 
the S-Class was ever profitable in recent memory. Um, same would actually go, I would say, for the Lexus LS, even though volumes have been higher in some generations for the LS. It takes so much to design a unique platform that's not sharing much. And that's really, really true for the Lexus LS, which doesn't really have a, a rear-wheel drive corollary other than the uh, the Hydrogen Mirai, which is incredibly low volume. They don't have the midsize sedan anymore. The Lexus IS is decently removed from the LS in design that there are really no energy energy uh, engineering synergies going on there. So it really should just be looked at in the same way as a Ford GT or a Dodge Viper or whatever halo car you want to insert here, Audi R8, for instance. Um, it's that same sort of halo luxury thing. The G90 is a demonstration of what what Genesis can build, uh, where their design is going in the future, and the kinds of things that we will probably see in more popular Genesis models going forward. Definitely. I would say that maybe if the S-Class is making a profit, it's not making it in this market, and it's not making it in the extended wheelbase markets. It's making it in places like Europe, where short wheelbase, two-wheel drive turbo diesels are still a thing in the D segment. <laughs> we never got those cars yeah, yet. We never got those cars, but then the margins are lower on the base models, so that's kind of tricky. Speaking of weird luxury models, though, let's dive into that Acura PMC. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, guys, here's the thing. The PMC is the Performance Manufacturing Center in Marysville, Ohio. Honda has operated it since time immemorial. It just finished building the second-generation Acura NSX, and now Honda needs a product for the assembly line. So we're getting the second Performance Manufacturing Center Acura TLS Type S. What is this other than a paint scheme and a limited edition, Alex? Or is it, or is that the size of it? I mean, that's basically the size of it. It's the, you know, the hand-assembled TLX, which was not designed for hand assembly. It was obviously designed for a manufacturing line initially. So that's kind of a weird and interesting twist there. It's basically for the Acura lover that wants the ultimate, ultimate Acura at the moment, which is a TLX. And that's sort of the odd twist with uh, Acura is that this is like saying... It's the ultimate BMW 340i because that's its direct competition. It doesn't compete with an M3, doesn't compete with anything larger and further up the food chain in the luxury segment. It is kind of an odd duck, I would say. No one's really tried this sort of thing in the luxury segment that I can think of. Um, the TLX Type S is itself kind of an odd duck because performance-wise, it's not where a lot of folks really expected it to be. It is the most performance-oriented Acura sedan. But it's still a front-wheel drive biased, super handling, all-wheel drive vehicle, single turbo V6, doesn't produce as much power as a lot of the competition and therefore just really falls behind a lot of the competition when it comes to performance. Uh, you know, uh, 340i, the C43 AMG, they're all faster. Um, the Volvo S60 T8 is faster as well. I mean, here's the thing. You've got a vehicle that weighs about 4,200 pounds. It's it's a fairly mm -hmm. large vehicle. It's all-wheel drive. Mm -hmm. It is turbocharged. It has 355 horsepower. But that would have been great back in the 2000s when this would have been equivalent Indeed. to like an Audi S-Car. Not an RS, but like an S-Car. Mm -hmm. Today, that's behind the ball. And look, it's fine on its own terms as the TLS TLX Type S, but that costs 56455 whereas if you get the PMC, the only difference is that it's allegedly hand-finished, and mm -hmm. they're going to be three colors, 100 of each, but $64,000 now to get Quite your limited edition Type S. 
That's a yes. lot of money for not a lot. It is of a lot of money. And the paint job is not some spectacular must hand wash it kind of paint job. They are good looking, but yeah, I don't think it's special enough to warrant that. And maybe it's good that Acura's volume projections are very small. I mean, I'm sure there are some hardcore Honda guys out there, you know, the guys who've rebadged their NSX Honda, those guys, mm-hmm. they're going to think this is really cool. It's like a daily driver. But I think, frankly, it would be a lot cooler if Acura would just give us a TLX type R and forget about the PMC. Yeah, um, you know, we'll be waiting a long time for that since the platform just simply wasn't designed for rear wheel drive or more power, rather, unfortunately, there had been a lot of hopes there. And I am shocked, really, to be honest, very shocked that Honda has still never designed a rear wheel drive platform outside of the NSX. They just don't want to do it. Um, And that's really what they would need to compete in the luxury segment if they're not going to do what Volvo has done, which is electrify things. And that's, I think, a path that Acura could mimic if they wanted to, but there seems to be a lack of desire. Um, Volvo is not competing with Mercedes and BMW with rear-wheel drive things. They've just been like, oh, you want over 400 horsepower? Let's stick a bigger motor in the back. 455, good to go. Well, the problem with Acura is that Acura, whereas Infinity was luxury, Lexus was luxury, they were shooting for the mainstream names. Acura, which first didn't have a full-size car like the LS, then corporate diktat was that Acura couldn't have a V8. Now Acura can't have a rear-wheel drive platform. It seems like Acura has always been the Japanese version of a Buick or an Oldsmobile, like a near luxury or luxury car, but not high luxury and not luxury performance, not where the Mercedes and the BMWs and the Lexus of the world are playing. Some place behind that, but above the likes of Honda and Chevrolet and Toyota. It's a weird tweener category brand. Yes, that is exactly where Acura plays. And it's it's a really odd and interesting segment there, this premium quote-unquote brand, because it hasn't really worked long-term in America. It's it's definitely faded. You know, we don't have we don't have Ozobiel and Buick anymore in reality. I mean, we have a few Buicks kicking around, but no volume in the U.S. Um, Ozobiel is dead. Theoretically, that's what Pontiac Chrysler was. Mercury is dead. Yeah, Mercury is dead. Theoretically, that's what the Chrysler brand was. We don't even bother doing that anymore in the U.S., really, other than a few, a minivan, basically. That's, that's all that's left there. Um, and it, it is interesting that Volvo's fortunes, I think, were tied with that market for a while. But over this last about 15 years or so, they've really decided to push themselves up market. And that's where they have found salvation because Volvo was really maybe just a, a semi-step above Acura because they didn't share parts with the other brands that were around when they were with Ford. There was very limited part sharing. Um, and then before that, of course, they were on their own. So they were in this weird little nebulous region there. Um, but with one would logically say the same foundational problems, I guess it's air quotes there around problems with the front wheel drive platform designs. Volvo has managed to make that not an issue in the luxury segment. And they're seeing, you know, really, really good sales in the U.S. Uh, for that brand. But, uh, you know, I don't know if we can handle a $100,000 Acura right now. And even Volvo had a, a tough time with the original XC90 Premier, which was up there at $100,000. And uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes with their new electric ones. But I think that's going to be a lot easier for them than than Acura with this PMC. I, I mean, I, I would say realistically, if you really love this, guys, wait two or three years, get it off a lease or, or buy mm-hmm. it used. Uh, it's an Acura, so you know the reliability should be just fine. No harm in buying this three, four, five years old. 
but it's just not exciting. And I think that's like the death knell to any performance model. It's not exciting. So now the question becomes, can you buy excitement for under $30,000? This is the main event today. We were talking about that diminishing class of car that starts under $30,000. Mm -hmm. In my lifetime, I've seen the $10,000 car go extinct. Uh, very shortly, we're gonna see the $20,000 car go extinct. So if you wanna get into a new vehicle today, the 20 to 30 range is where that entry level vehicle lives and we're talking about them now. All right, Tim, let's just roll through the numbers. First up, in alphabetical order, we have Buick. And Buick, interestingly, has two vehicles under $30,000, even though they're trying to be Acura Premium. Acura did miss the mark a bit because, of course, the new Integra is uh, starts around $36,000. Okay, so now question about this vehicle. Does it feel like a penalty box? Like, if you buy a vehicle that starts under $30,000, is the assumption that it doesn't become desirable until we get above that level? Mm. Yeah, interesting point. Buick stripped out basically i have always had a soft spot for the encore and encore gx those are the two buicks under thirty thousand dollars because i forgot to mention those just a moment ago i've always had a soft spot for them because they're very practical they actually are quite comfortable and quiet inside for a small crossover they are pretty small though so that is something to keep in mind and buick is not a luxury brand obviously but they do have slightly nicer bits i think good color combinations if you're a fan of brown interiors you'll find lovely brown interiors and in modern buicks uh lots to love not any kind of performance love obviously going on on these two i will say this buick knows buick and for a relatively small crossover it's got a pretty good ride. The interior, depending on how you spec it out, does look pretty good. They discovered with the original Enclave that Earth Tones are back and they're premium. So yes, they do do beautiful brown interiors. It's relatively quiet. It's relatively spacious. It rides well. Like a lot of GM crossovers, it's not particularly efficient for its class. So fueling costs, that would be something to consider when going for an Encore. But the rest of the package is pretty yeah. attractive. The Encore GX is not too bad, and it's closely related to our next set of contenders, which is Chevrolet. They have, interestingly enough, eight models under $30,000. Let's just roll through them here. We have the Bolt and Bolt EUV. They're electric vehicles, and those can be quite inexpensive if you qualify for the full federal tax credit. We have the Trailblazer, which is the relative of the Encore GX. We have the new Trax, which is front-wheel drive only, so lots of crossovers going on here. The Equinox can squeak it in under $30,000. Technically a Colorado, a Malibu, and a Camaro as well. Okay, so now the Bolt is my pick from this group. I've got some preferences in this space. What I like about the Bolt is the fact that it now starts so far below $30,000 mm -hmm. because the price has diminished in two consecutive model years. We saw a $5,900 price drop versus 2002. And if we go back to 2021, the entry-level Bolt is now $10,900 cheaper than it was back then, making it almost yep. unique among all vehicles on the market. A 1LT starts at about $27,000. A 2 LT starts just under 30. So there is room here to actually offer yourself some options, mm -hmm. raise the level of the experience. And it's not a stripped out car. And it's fundamentally the same thing that Chevy was charging $40,000 to buy just five years ago, albeit with some mm -hmm. refinements on the EUV side in particular. If you want to go that route, you're not going to be able to get Super Cruise for under $30,000. Right. You're not going to be able to load it up with options. The Bolt is still the cheaper of the two. And in my opinion, uh, still the more attractive buy because this is a price-sensitive class. This is a price-sensitive model. 
it is not an exciting EV. I nope. do think it is a great option though, with 259 miles of pretty realistic range and more volume for its size than you would expect. It's a decent family hauler. You just basically need to own a house to get the most out of it. Right. And I, I, I sense that Tim is a, a devoted Bolt fan here. So if you want to see our, our most recent Bolt EUV video, a little quick plug here, that's coming up soon on the Auto Buyer's Guide channel. Uh, I actually think that Chevy's got a really good lineup of inexpensive vehicles because the Trax and Trailblazer look really good. The Trailblazer we've driven before. I've driven the all-wheel drive model, the front-wheel drive model. If you want a CVT and good fuel economy, you can do that. If you want a nine-speed automatic because you hate CVTs, you can do that as well in the Trailblazer. And inside, it is a lot roomier than you might think. In some dimensions, it's more accommodating than a RAV4, but the price tag is pretty low. If you're looking for, you know, I would say, the modern compact station wagon, that's going to be the Chevy Trax. It's going to be under $25,000 for all versions all in. No all-wheel drive in that one, but decent fuel economy in a big cargo area. And I would say also the Colorado is not a bad option. Since it's getting replaced soon, you can find the previous generation model pretty cheap. And weird twist is that on the Colorado and Canyon, and to a lesser extent, the Nissan Frontier and, and Ranger right now, we are seeing deals on the hood. So not every vehicle out there is going for over MSRP. There are a few that are actually going under MSRP, and small trucks are among them, as long as you're not going too small down there towards the Maverick. Um, Malibu, honestly, I would probably skip, as with the Camaro. Yeah, I think if you want to buy yourself a Malibu, not, not a bad way to spend some money if you want a voluminous car, but don't buy it new. I would say yeah. don't, don't go out and buy that new. Buy that a few years old off a lease, lightly used. That's the way to buy a car. Like that's, that's really the way to buy any car today, unless it's some sort of collectible or you plan to drive it into the ground and keep it for life. Mm -hmm. um, I am surprised that you mentioned that crossover SUVs, especially outgoing models, might be available on dealer lots. That's not something we would have said six, eight, nine months ago. Yeah, some of the inventory appears to be leveling depending on the brand. And that is really, really a key thing to keep in mind. Not every brand out there is going to have good inventory. You know, good luck finding a Subaru of any description on the dealer lot. They're, you can't find them for love nor money. Uh, but the American brands, as we have seen in the past, generally have a slightly softer sales profile, I guess you'd say. So a little bit easier to find that inventory, et cetera. Um, now, on the Ford side of things, there are a number of models here that we're talking about that you just can't find either. So Ford has seven things under $30,000. Obviously, the Escape, Escape Hybrid, and interestingly, the Escape Plug-in Hybrid. Those can all be available for under thirty k. But I think the Bronco Sport is better. Good luck finding that one. I also think the Maverick is better. Good luck finding that one because both of them are all spoken for. Uh, technically, you might be able to find a Ranger. That would be a good alternative, I would say. If you really want a small truck, it's not going to be as efficient as the Maverick. Uh, and then we can get a Mustang under thirty. And rumor mill says the new Mustang will probably be just under thirty as well. That's pretty impressive. If, if that works out, that's pretty impressive. I will say this, based on zero merit whatsoever, other than the fact that it is just mismatched to our market, you might be able to find an EcoSport sitting somewhere out on a dealer lot. <laughs> I'm not saying you want to buy it. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying it's possible. It's possible. Yeah. I was always told it was supposed to be an Echo Sport. So. Oh, an Echo Sport. Whatever. Is there yes. an Echo in here? I didn't know. 
I don't know. The other thing that we don't know is why anybody would want Fiat's one loan car under $30,000, the 500X. So we're just going to skip right across that, go to GMC that has two options, the Terrain and the Canyon. I think the Terrain is an attractive alternative to the Equinox. The Equinox is a good deal, but I don't like the look. And I think that the uh, the Terrain is a better look for them. Uh, and the Canyon, we're talking previous model only, not the new one that everybody's seeing. That one you should still be able to squeak under 30000 with the four-cylinder engine. Interesting. And I do kind of agree with you on the way it looks and the general ambiance of it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm totally on board with that. I would also say, realistically... Um, there's just there's very little chance of our next brand Honda offering mm. anything unsold on dealer lots. Like all of these vehicles are Honda royalty. We're talking about the Civic. We're talking about the Accord, the Accord Hybrid. As much as I love mm -hmm. the idea of being able to get these under thirty thousand dollars, can you really see a world where we can walk into a dealer and drive one of these off a lot? Oh, I can actually tell you, yes, that's okay. that's the one good thing. So um, Honda's sales have been still good through the pandemic. Um, they've had some supply shortages, so that has affected availability. But generally speaking, Honda dealers don't charge as much over MSRP as some of the other brands out there. So when we look at the ranking uh, among auto brands, how far over MSRP brands are transacting, Kia and Hyundai actually have a, a higher average dealer markup than Honda does. So you're much more likely to get them at dealer, mar at, uh, dealer list price. Um, it also depends on the model a bit. So Civic has been a little softer sales-wise, as long as we're not talking about SI or Type R. Yes. Um, so you probably will be able to get a Civic. Um, the HRV especially has been pretty available. We definitely see those on dealer lots around. And now that the Accord is transitioning to a new generation, you may see the ability to get the Accord on dealer lots, uh, some of the residuals left before the new one rolls on the scene. So if you don't know what the new one looks like, there's a, a video on that on the uh, Alex and Autos channel. You can take a look at that. That should be entering production right around the time that we're, uh, we're you know, this video goes live. Um, and it should be on sale around January of next year, we're told. Some details are still sketchy about exactly when that will be available. Um, but, uh, yeah, Honda sales have been, I think actually, uh, they've suffered a tiny bit because of what some see as, as Honda's, uh, you know, laissez-faire attitude to the, some of their refreshes and redesigns. Okay. I think the, the Accord and the Pilot and the HRV, uh, even the CRV to some extent, I think a lot of folks wanted them to be more exciting, more adventurous designs. And instead Honda went in a very conservative direction, uh, with the redesign of those vehicles. And I agree with that. I would say that there are still some gems to be found, um, but we talked about how you can't get an SI or a Type R Civic. But what's nice is this generation, this is kind of my highlight from the Honda portfolio. Under $30,000, you still got a lot of Civic options and the hatchback still offers a manual transmission. So if you go for a sport hatchback at $27,000 or the EXL hatchback at $29,000, you get a turbocharged 180 horsepower engine, you get a manual transmission, you get a five-door hatchback body. The sedan no longer offers the manual, so you're gonna to wanna to get the hatchback. And to mm -hmm. be perfectly honest, just a generation ago, 180 horsepower and a manual transmission is what a type you know, SI was. Uh, so yeah. you can still get a very engaging vehicle. And it's also important to note that of the six fundamental Civic models, only two of them start above, well, I guess you can 
you can add the SI and you can add the R. Yeah. But of the non-SI and R six core models, only two of them start over $30,000. Yeah. You can still add quite a few options to your Civic. You don't have to just hope that there's a stripper on a dealer lot. There, There is a fair amount of room there to customize yeah. and add some luxury. And Honda's pricing tends to be a little higher than average in the segment as far as MSRP because they put a lot of standard active safety tech on all their vehicles. I really like the Civic hatchback because if you're looking for an HRV, most HRV shoppers, oddly enough, don't choose all-wheel drive. So the majority of HRV shoppers, I think, would be better served by getting a Civic hatch. It's a bigger vehicle. The fuel economy is actually substantially similar to the HRV. It handles better. I think it looks better. And the cargo area is a little bit more practical in many ways. Uh, if you fold down the rear seats, you can certainly put bigger things in your Civic hatch than you could in an HRV, interestingly. Yeah, I would definitely uh, say that's worth mentioning. Plus, Honda mm -hmm. fuel economy tends to be at at the upper end of the scale in the compact class. So mm -hmm. there are some compact cars that don't deliver great fuel economy. Honda's never on that list. So that's also yep. part of the appeal. Yep. Unless you get their hybrids and then they fall a little below the yeah. average hybrid. Uh, next up, we have the brand with the second most offerings under $30,000. That would be Hyundai. Uh, Hyundai. Uh, we have the Venue, the Accent, the Elantra, Elantra Hybrid, Kona, Tucson, Santa Cruz, Santa Fe, Sonata, and Sonata Hybrid. That was a mouthful. What's your pick from this uh, 10 list? I mean, to be perfectly honest, there's a lot of confusing overlap here, but I would probably opt for a car over a crossover, so I'm going to start there. I like the size of the Sonata and I like tech, so maybe I would shoot the moon and go for a Sonata hybrid. I like the way the basic vehicle looks. I like the car platform. Um, if we're not going all out with performance, and we're not because no one's getting an N line mm -hmm. or an N at this price point, yeah, I'd go with the Sonata hybrid. I think that's the most interesting. That's the most satisfying vehicle for me from a commuter standpoint. Huh. So the rumor mill says that nobody else likes the look, and that's why they're giving it an emergency redesign, since no I'm one was a, a fan it. of the catfish. Interesting. I, I like a lot of really ugly cars. I like the old Rolls-Royce Camargue. <laughs> I had absolutely no quarrel with the Mercedes EQS. It's the world's most powerful suppository, but that's fine. I, <laughs> it, it, that has a place. Uh, I and I had my no top... problem. Yeah, I had no problem with the Civic Type R, which was, you know, ugly. Yeah. It's like a I think uh, I think my top two picks would be the Santa Fe because you get a big crossover for under thirty thousand. If you can keep everything under control, yeah. uh, just really go for that base model. You can be under thirty thousand dollars, and the base model is really well featured because the the mission of the Santa Fe is to be Ford Edge sized but Ford Escape priced, and I think they've managed to do a good job at that. I also think the Elantra Hybrid is a good uh, option to look at if you want high fuel economy, low cost of operation uh, in something that's sort of cheap and cheerful. Uh, then from Jeep, we have two options, the Compass and the Renegade. I think the Renegade is the better looking on the outside. The Compass, interestingly, has just received a pretty dramatic refresh with a really elegant looking interior and uh, standard all wheel drive, standard two liter turbo and standard no longer on really the $30,000 list is the thing to keep in mind. So we're talking older Compass here. Here's the thing. The Renegade on paper seems like it would be the cool one to own. Compasses, whether first generation or second generation, are terminally domestic. At least with mm -hmm. the Renegade, I mean, I understand it's based on a Fiat we've already dismissed in its entirety. Um, but all the same. It's but this is a, way better looking than that Fiat. It is. It's got that square jawed, hunkered yeah. look to it. Um, and I'm not sure if you can get a Trackhawk for under 30. I don't think you can. Uh, 
but it's just a great looking cute ute I, and anything else yeah. was i'm sad that we can't yeah. get the hybrid here yeah i mean i think everyone's a little bit bummed by that but there's a lot of cool jeep stuff that's going to be available in europe in the next 24 months that we're not getting just yet um, but yeah, I had a, I had a renegade as a rental car. I know that's kind of a damning introduction, but I sort of liked it. And it yeah. looked the part of like a 60% scale nineties XJ Cherokee. And on that basis alone, I can quasi endorse it. It is adorable. I've always thought the renegade was adorable. Um, it is part of this interesting new change. I, well, I not new really about a 10 year in the, in the making change at Jeep, which is Jeep turning into a global brand. Something that we have not seen really in a long time out of an American, quote unquote, American car company. Um, now we have Jeeps that are Chinese market only. We have Jeeps that are European market only. And then we have Jeeps that are American market only. And never in living history have we seen this, honestly, out of the Chrysler company or anything that has come before it. Um, they were really very American focused models. And then occasionally they would snag something from some European partner and try and jam it into America. That never really worked. And now we have a company, oddly, that is developing models specifically for China, a compact three-row Jeep, which is bonkers with a plug-in hybrid, an electric tiny Jeep just for Europe. Uh, we have the Renegade, which is available as a hybrid, a plug-in hybrid in Europe as well. That's kind of crazy too. Um, and then we have the Jeep Compass, which is sort of trying to be mini Grand Cherokee. The design of the interior really looks good. Um, and we have some performance and plug-in hybrid things here and there and EVs coming up and even grander Wagoneers and and uh, ginormous electric Wagoneers at some point in the future. Kind of a weird twist there from uh, from what had been just a brand built on an old army car. No, well, I mean, that's a good point. There probably haven't been this many Jeeps overseas since World War II. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Ouch. I, I don't know if we should tell some some of our, uh, you know, former enemies that uh, current allies. Uh, uh, next up, we have Kia, which I was surprised has fewer models under $30,000 than Hyundai does these days. So go figure there. We have the Soul, the Seltos, Sportage, Sportage Hybrid, Sorento, Nero, the lineup there, Nero Hybrid, uh, Rio Forte and K5, although the rumor mill tells us that the K5 is likely not long for the world. Yeah, I would have gone, the first generation Soul was generally a pretty cool, funky vehicle. It was like a better take on the original Scion XB and a much better take on the Nissan Cube. So I kind of mm -hmm. like that first generation Soul. But if I were looking at any of these vehicles now, it'd probably be the Neo Hybrid, just for the sake of packaging and efficiency. It's yeah, a tough it's over 50 MPG. Yeah, I mean, that's that's going to make the decision for me. You're not shopping sub $30,000 new cars because you want to spend a lot of money. And to me, this, I don't know, it saves more money for Hellcats or something else down the line. <laughs> yeah, I would say that I would go for any of the hybrids on this list too. Uh, just a you know, viewer comment here. Um, you, if you're under $30,000, clearly price point is a concern. And then you should also be thinking about operational costs. And all of these hybrids will save you money in the long run. 53 MPG in the most efficient Nero is a really great fuel economy score. If you're really, really concerned about hybrid system longevity, et cetera, uh, know that these are warranted to 100,000 miles in 10 years for their powertrain from Hyundai and from Kia. Uh, Toyota doesn't warrant their hybrids quite as long, but they will absolutely outlive that number. So I 
really would not be concerned uh, with that lifespan at all. Uh, I would say my my picks would be either the Nero Hybrid or the Sorrento Hybrid, even though I do think the, sorry, the Sportage Hybrid, even though I do think the Sportage looks like it was beat with an ugly stick, um, and the Soul because it was really practical. I actually had a Soul back in 2016. Uh, that was probably the most practical little car I have ever owned. Yeah, that the, the Soul was a great vehicle. Um we'll look back someday someone will write a book about the weird rolling dorm room cars of like the 2000s <laughs> and 2010s they'll have like the nissan cube the scion xb the honda mm-hmm. element the kia soul it'll be like an era it'll be like earth tones and naga hide <laughs> oh those nagas uh, next up, we have Mazda. They have technically a Miata soft top, a CX-50, CX-5, CX-30, and Mazda 3. So basically, uh, we have one, two, three, four, five, four different versions of almost the same vehicle, CX-5 excluded, because that's actually on the older platform. Uh, and then we have a rear-wheel drive, uh, you know, Italian sports car kind of thing. Um I think, you know, if I were looking for fun, the Miata would obviously be the tops on my list for sub $30,000 joy. Um, And then I really like the CX-50. I think it's good value. Yeah, I would probably be looking at something like a Mazda 3 because fun, compact car, good fuel efficiency, decent dynamics, lots to love without having to opt for some sort of a performance model to get the experience. Uh, Mm -hmm. Of course, I'm partial to cars. I'm glad Mazda still makes them. That would be my choice, even though I love the idea of a Miata. But I think realistically, you can just barely squeak under 30000 if you're buying a new Miata. Yeah. Get a better Miata a few years old. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my one problem with the CX or the sorry, the Mazda 3 is its rear suspension is not independent. And that really puts it at a major disadvantage. Uh, if you really are trying to drive it spiritedly outside of a an auto, a perfect autocross course or a track situation where I think it does okay, um, on real roads, that rear suspension really gets upset so easily. Um, the six-speed auto is also kind of a boat anchor. It's really, really heavy. And by the time you've added all-wheel drive, which is probably the way I would want my turbo Mazda 3, you're talking pretty heavy compared to a lot of the competition. So it's just never going to feel as engaging as a Civic Si, etc. I think that's a bit of a shame. Um, There are lots of rumors swirling that Mazda is either working on their own 8-speed or maybe they're finally going to get Toyota's 8-speed from Ison. Uh, I hope that either one of those is true and that we do see a new transmission from them because that six speed's really holding them back. And I could probably forgive the rear suspension for the uh, the interior. The Mazda 3 is a gorgeous interior. It is hands away uh, the best looking in that segment uh, when we're talking about the stand. I think it's really gorgeous, but the driving dynamics are a bit of a disappointment for me. You see, for me, in Pennsylvania, it would be more of a factor than if I were in Southern California or Florida, because there you tend to have very good roads, whereas here we've got a lot of potholes and frost heaves, and that really is where you start to feel a live axle. On a smooth road, it's not something that declares itself, so I could live with it just fine in a smooth road environment. But if you're in Michigan, if you're in the Midwest, if you're in the Northeast, that's really where you're going to feel the live axle the most. Otherwise, I don't think it's going to be as much of a factor. Um, even if you're in a place that's fairly wet like Florida, as long as you don't have the frost cycling, you're not going to feel those rough, broken roads. I do wish Mazda had independent rear suspension. It bugs me that in this day and age, you can still get cars with drum brakes and live axles. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I am surprised that they went in this design direction with the Mazda 3. And it, it's most likely cost. A lot of the things, decisions we see at Mazda are likely cost-related because there's just not a lot of money going on at Mazda. They're a very small company, and they're on their own now since they're no longer tied with a corporate partner. Um, there's a minority interest that is owned by Toyota, but there's not really a lot of investment from Toyota in Mazda. You can still get a manual transmission, though, on the 3. So that's something mm -hmm. to its credit. That's to yes. its credit if you are a driving enthusiast. But yep. I think coming up next, we actually have what might be top to bottom the most interesting brand in the sub $30,000 <laughs> segment because you can get genuinely entertaining Mini Coopers for under thirty k. Yep, two of them. You can actually get a two-door or a four-door, which I was surprised somehow that the hardtop four-door is enough under $30,000 that I was like, uh, it's okay on this list. There's plenty of headroom, too, because the standard Cooper hardtop starts at 25000 whereas the Cooper S hardtop starts at mm -hmm. just under 28000 So even with delivery, destination, and a few options, you're still talking about a genuine $30,000 vehicle out the door. And to me, that matters quite a bit. Now, these are interesting because they're little BMWs. We don't get the BMW 1 Series anymore, so this mm -hmm. is the closest living descendant of what was once the one series in America. It's the smallest BMW group car you can get, just as the mm -hmm. Phantom is the biggest BMW group car you can get. Oh, pardon me, now it's the Cullinan. But you see my point mm -hmm. here. This is a right. way to get into a premium car that costs less money. You can also, and this is rare in the segment, get a convertible for under $30,000. It just barely squeaks under. The Cooper convertible is $29,250. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking for a convertible that seats more than two for under 30 grand new, this is one of the only choices yeah. going. Definitely. Uh, and it's a much more exciting brand than our next one here, which is uh -oh. Mitsubishi, you know, the runt of the litter, I guess you might say in some circles. There are a number of models, though, uh, five of them that are under $30,000. We have the Outlander, Outlander Sport, Eclipse Cross, Mirage, and the Mirage Hatchback thing that they call the G4. Or am I, is that the sedan? I don't know. Anyway. Two of them that are under under there. Interestingly, though, the Mirage is no longer the least expensive vehicle in North America. That award goes back to the Nissan Versa this year. Uh, Mitsubishi does have long standard warranties, but I think the only one of these that I would recommend would be the Outlander. Yeah. A word to the wise, guys. If you're looking at something called a Sport, avoid it. Range Rover mm -hmm. Sport, Outlander Sport. Echo Sport. It seems whenever the word sport is in the name, you're getting the crummy version. And there is also a Bronco Sport, which isn't bad in and of itself, but it's a shadow <laughs> of an actual Bronco. So you see my point uh, here. Yes. Outlander Sport is the one to avoid. There's not a whole lot of interest in the Mitsubishi lineup. And when I talk about Mitsubishi these days, the follow up from other people is often that still exists which is kind of yep, a bad yep. place to be in because it also means in terms of sales and service, there are whole swaths of the country where it's hard to find a dealer. So take that into account. Yeah. If you get an Outlander, though, uh, all of your Nissan parts will fit because the Outlander and basically everything that we're probably going to see from Mitsubishi going forward is a Nissan. So the Outlander and the Nissan Rogue were co-developed with one another. So uh, depending on your preference here, that might be the way to go. The Outlander generally is a better deal than the Rogue, and I do think it looks attractive from some angles. There's also that plug-in hybrid uh, that's available, but it's not going to be under 30. Uh, so moving along to Mitsubishi's parent company, which sounds weird to say, we have Nissan, which has the Kicks, the Versa, the Sentra, Ultima, Rogue, Leaf, and Frontier, 
Kix is one of the least expensive hatchbacks. Versa is the least expensive anything in North America for 2023. Well, the tragedy to me is that you can no longer get the Nissan Juke because in the sub $30,000 range, that was, was terrible. Probably, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was it was weird and funky. It was not a good vehicle, but it was an interesting vehicle. It was the kind of thing you'd take a second look at if you wanted to buy more than just an, a generic four-wheel box. Um, I liked it on that basis alone. And there was a fun Nismo version and people can never guess where the headlights were. There was, there was a lot to love on its own terms here. I don't know. You can only get a very basic sort of hand to mouth leaf for under $30,000. It's not priced anything like Mm -hmm. the bolt. It's still very difficult to get a reasonably equipped, reasonably ranged leaf for under 30 grand. As far as qualify for the full tax credit though. So that's, that's a factor. Yep. That is a factor. The Versa, I don't know, cars like that, that's a soul crushing experience. I can't see myself ever lining up in a Versa, not because it's the cheapest car you can now buy in North America, but because it's one of the least appealing in its class and admittedly small class. It's just not good. So I, I, uh, I take a, a slightly different approach here because my two okay. picks would be the Altima and the Versa. Um, I think the Altima's interior is still very attractive. It holds up really well against the competition. It's quite fuel efficient. Um, And the Versa is really inexpensive good value. I mean, you can actually get a new car with a new car warranty, zero miles on it, that you can drive till the wheels come off with 40 miles per gallon on the highway for about $15,000. You can actually do that. It is a thing that, that is available and can be purchased. If you've got to have a warranty, I can see that. But the Altima is a lot of car for the money. It's mm-hmm. an uncommonly roomy, comfortable, meat of the market 1990s mainstream American sedan. It's a thing out of its time in this era. Mm-hmm. But back in an era when the Toyota Camry and the Ford Taurus and the Honda Accord ruled the world, something very much like today's Altima would have been a great entrant in that market. And on its own terms, it's still appealing. As sure. that kind but of it's also 66% more expensive than a Nissan Versa. So if you're looking for good, solid, good, solid transportation that is not exciting, but will get you A to B with a seat that hasn't had, you know, a 500 pound dude in it uh, and slightly bent to the side or whatever, kind of whatever, you know, no curb rash like you might find in a used car, perfect paint from the factory, et cetera, with a big trunk and reasonable interior, uh, you know, the Versa's Good, honest, good, honest transportation. That's that's the key thing. It's not exciting, but it does exactly what it says on the label. During the Soviet era of Russian history, there was a popular book called Cement about a worker who exceeded his cement quota. If you think that sounds cool, the Versa is for you. (laughs) Ouch. Moving right along, we have Subaru with seven models theoretically under $30,000, but good luck actually finding any of them on the lot since every Subaru right now is so hot that they just roll off the lot as soon as they roll onto it. Uh, We have the Impreza, the Crosstrek, Forester, Outback, which is surprising. Uh, Legacy, technically, that is the one that you might find on a Subaru dealer lot because Legacy is not selling quickly at all. Uh, And then BRZ and technically a WRX as well. The BRZ would be the pick for me. The, the BRZ would be fun because I'm just me. I've got nothing to haul. I've got no people. I've got no pets. Easy to do. Now, if you could actually find one, you have a lot of pricing flexibility with the Crosstrek, which is basically a five-door compact hatchback with 8.7 inches of ground clearance. Mm-hmm. 
which is quite appealing when you combine that with all-wheel drive. That's a great snow state car, and you will find them at trailheads across America. Starting mm -hmm. at $24,870, it's also attractively priced, and you can get into a yep. premium or a special edition for under twenty-eight grand, which I like because you can actually add some features. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be fun to drive in the traditional sense, but it's the kind of car that does have character. And I would say among Subaru cars today, it's probably a combination of the the WRX and the Crosstrek for the most character. Like it's yeah. a genuinely unusual type of vehicle because you don't expect nine inches of ground clearance in a compact hatchback and it gives or, you a little bit of quirk. Yeah. Or, or do you? Because of course it's Subaru. So every Subaru, you know, thing that's trying to be off-roady is at least over eight inches because that's basically what the Outback is. It's, it's Outback formula applied to the hatchback rather than wagon variant of something. So the Outback is, of course, the legacy wagon. And uh, and the Impreza hatchback, which is now hatchback only for 2023, and Crosstrek are the same vehicle. They share the same doors, the same hood, the same quarter panels. Uh, all the sheet metal is shared between the Impreza and the Crosstrek. They simply add extra cladding and extra ground clearance and make it the best-selling vehicle in its segment. What's also intriguing is that Subaru did not bother to try and make a smaller crossover. So the Crosstrek is supposedly a subcompact crossover. That's how it's sold in the United States. It supposedly competes with the Jeep Renegade and, and an HRV, et cetera. But it's much bigger than that because it's actually a Camry or sorry, a Corolla and Civic sized hatch that's been lifted and its price tag lowered. So kind of a weird twist there in the segment that Subaru chose to go in that direction. So it just ends up being really good value. And I think that's why it's the most popular in that segment right now. And true, if you could, again, in theory, in a world where these things actually exist, the sport version of the Crosstrek can be had with the 182 horsepower engine, which mm -hmm. actually gives it quite a bit of pickup for a vehicle that size and weight. There was a time not long ago when Crosstreks were trekking around with under 150 horsepower, and that was the top engine you could get. So it has come along a little bit as a driver's car, but if I look at the Crosstrek, I almost look at what the aftermarket was doing with Subarus like five, six years ago. That's This mm -hmm. is a production version of that. Yeah, in a way. Uh, and next up, we have the winner for the most vehicles under $30,000, technically with asterisks here. It's MSRP under $30,000. Uh, we have Toyota with the Prius, Prius Prime, Corolla, Corolla Hybrid, Camry, Camry Hybrid, GR86, Tacoma, CHR, RAV4, Corolla Cross, and most likely the Corolla Cross Hybrid when it comes out on sale in early 2023. So theoretically, about 12 models. Uh, now, some of these, like the Tacoma, good luck for finding actually uh, in that price range. And uh, the Corolla Cross Hybrid may be pushing the boundaries there a little bit. Yeah, the thing about the... The 86 is, it's a fantastic car that just barely scrapes under the bar. So you're going to buy one stripped out. If you're going to try to get mm -hmm. the sports car, you're going to be looking at something that has zero options, which might be fine because mm -hmm. combine that engine with manual transmission and you're going to have a good time. But some of the options on that- well, It starts at 27.9. So that's not, it's not too bad. Yeah. Hmm. Are you looking at 22 or 23? Because I think the price is going up. That's 2023. Starts at 27,009. Oh, that's maybe I'm looking at the prices that include destination charge because I'm looking at a car mm -hmm. that comes in at 28,995 in base form. I, I think there's 
we're looking that's at with, yeah with destination. So with destination, yeah. it's it's a little bit a little bit more than that, but still decently under thirty thousand. Uh, and that will get you, of course, the manual transmission. You could get the automatic under $30,000 if you wanted to, but trust me, you don't want that. Um, and there are no options available on the base GR86. So you have to step up to the GR86 premium, which is just over $30,000. Uh, so it, it's not a bad deal. It's, it's cheap, honest, fun. And one interesting twist, the GR86 some years may sell better than BRZ, but generally is cheaper than BRZ. So actually, actual out-the-door price, you're likely to get a better deal on the GR86 than the Subaru, even though it's still a Subaru. Now, I like the idea of getting a Prius Prime for under 30 grand, but I think reality is that you're just barely going to get under. It, it's going to, you're going to be shaving mm-hmm. some hair off the top. So yep, tricky. Yeah, going for a Corolla, though, makes it a lot easier to get mm-hmm. into a fairly well-equipped hybrid at a reasonable price. The hybrid LE mm-hmm. sedan in the Corolla lineup, if you include destination, is 23895 which is very reasonable. You can get into a non-hybrid hatchback for just a few dollars more at 24060 and you mm-hmm. can get a hybrid SE sedan, which is quite well-equipped with quite a few options, for just under $27,000, and you can go all the way up to a hybrid XLE sedan for under $28,000. All-wheel drive is available, not necessarily a Mm -hmm. performance all-wheel drive, but it'll get you moving, and you will be getting reasonable fuel economy with over 40 miles per gallon combined. We're not talking Prius Prime territory, Mm -hmm. but quite respectable for what it is. I think that because almost all of the Corollas, including upscale trims, including hybrids, are under $30,000, that's where I would be spending my hybrid money at Toyota if I were really price sensitive. I would also recommend taking a good long look at the Camry Hybrid because the Camry Hybrid will oddly get you better fuel economy than the Corolla. It just has to do with the generations of hybrid systems and how they've been adapted here. So you'll get 50 miles per gallon in the Camry Hybrid, which is pretty impressive. Uh, and you can get one with destination for 29175 And even though it starts in the LE trim, it is better configured than a Corolla LE, of course, with better interior materials, etc. A lot more room on the inside. Uh, and a more premium feel with actually slightly better handling than we find there as well, um, but a little bit more expensive. So I think that's a, a good uh, good blend there. I will say that the CHR I would avoid. I would probably also avoid if you are looking at a Prius, the current generation Prius, you might get a good deal, but the new one is so much better looking. It's yeah. going to be out very, very soon. It's going to be on sale this calendar year. Um, Tacoma is getting pretty old. Uh, Corolla Cross, I would wait for the Corolla Cross Hybrid, which uh, should be coming very soon. We know all the details. But we don't know any pricing just yet. Um, whether or not it will be Mini RAV4 Hybrid kind of uh, performance, etc., we don't really know. Fuel economy is a little bit below where a lot of folks had thought it would be. It's going to be right around 38 miles per gallon rather than 40 like we find in the RAV4 Hybrid. So in, in Toyota's hybrid lineup, sometimes the bigger, higher performance vehicle, interestingly, will get you better fuel economy. Yeah, I think if you want to go heavy on options, you go with the Corolla. If you want mm-hmm. the bigger, um, more efficient vehicle, you go yeah. with the Camry. And it's it's tricky, of course, because you need to monitor those option lists and decide which options are important to you. Because some things you'll find standard on the Camry that are not available in the Corolla. Um, and some things are going to be optional on the Corolla for a lower price than you'll find them on the Camry. So just, you know, you have to, you have to balance those things out. Um, very the, true. Uh, when you're when you're comparing size class to size class, that tends to be important. 
Uh, and then last up, we have Volkswagen. They have technically three models. They have the Jetta, Tiguan, and the Taos. The Tiguan, of course, we've already seen its replacement, but we don't have it here yet. Um, the Taos is their small crossover, and the Jetta is a sedan. Okay, so the thing I like about the Jetta is that you've got a lot of headroom under $30,000. Realistically, mm -hmm. the entry-level model, the S, is going to start at just over $21,000, which means even if you go all the way to the top of the line and you buy something like a Jetta SEL, which is all the options, you know, top model, sports trim, extensive, um, inst just luxury opulence you're getting something close to the maximum jetta, <laughs> jetta luxury opulence I, I would say you're getting something close to the maximum jetta for thirty thousand mm -hmm. dollars whereas with the suvs you have to make choices and yes i understand the jetta is plasticky and volkswagen interiors are not what they were in the 2000s but the taos is particularly offensive there are some plastic seams in that <laughs> truck that feel like they could slice skin and i'm only being slightly hyperbolic there yeah, the interesting thing about the Jetta is also that uh, since the sales have really been low, to be frank, with Volkswagen's passenger sedan lineup, uh, the Jetta's probably going to be available for a really good deal as well. It does come across as a little plain Jane inside and outside, but it is roomy for its segment. Um, just keep in mind that it's probably not going to be around much longer. So if you want one, you might want to find one soon. It looks like there is not going to be a redesign of the Jetta uh, because the Jetta that we get in the United States is, of course, for viewers that don't know yet, uh, not the Jetta that we find in Europe. So if you're listening to this podcast in Europe and you're thinking, what's going on? It's Surely it's going to return. Your Jetta is going to return. The North American Jetta likely will not. Rumor Mill is saying that China will get an updated Jetta that's just going to be their market. The current generation one uh, is, is simply a North American Chinese sedan. It's not the Jetta that's found in Europe at all. Same with the Passat, which is why the Passat has sailed off into the sunset in the United States, uh, but it's sticking around in some other markets. It's a reasonably engaging vehicle. What I like about it is it's under 3,200 pounds, which by the standards of this crazy world is now super light. There's a manual transmission option if you want it. It doesn't have a ton of power, but at over 180 pound feet of torque for its size, mm -hmm. it's got a decent amount of that. And, you know, it is just it's it's a large vehicle for its class. It's got decent interior volume. The trunk at 14 cubic feet is fairly large for a vehicle in that size class. It is a capable road tripper. And frankly, I just have never warmed up to crossover utility vehicles. Uh, maybe I'm a min-max guy where I've got to have a car or like a full-blown live axle truck. And I don't I don't mesh well with what comes in between. Um, so yeah, the Jetta would be my choice here. I don't think any of the Volkswagen options, frankly, are great ones, but that cuts to a problem we've discussed in the past, which is that Volkswagen cars tend to be large for their class, cost a little bit less than you'd expect for their class, mm -hmm. and generally seem a little bit more bereft, bare bones, and underspect for their class. Oh, and just quick programming note for everybody. Uh, looks like Volkswagen has discontinued the four-door Passat sedan in Europe as well. So uh, there you go. Well, there you go. The the crossover reigns. Yep. Um, it's, all right. Maybe we'll do an episode about tweeners, stuff like Subarus, the Toyota Crown, mm -hmm. that the Audi All-Road. Maybe that'll be a future category. Then we'll be unconstrained by considerations of cost. But today was all about economy. And Alex, if people want to learn more about these economical vehicles, where do they go? They can find us on YouTube at EV Buyer's Guide. You can also find us at Alex and Autos. You can find us over at Facebook. And, of course, quick merch plug here for the end of the year. 
If you want to buy your Auto Buyer's Guide, EV Buyer's Guide, and Alex and Auto's merch, you can head over to AOAMerch.com and uh, find some child seat testing gear or just uh, random merch. Toodaloo. See you later.